0: Listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to co founder of Kickstarter and author Yancey Strickler. It's long been my theory
1: that the post internet innovation won't be like AR or AI or whatever, another technological revolution. I think the revolution after the internet is consciousness, is human consciousness, is the networked organism of all of us. And I don't mean that in a singularity kind of way.
0: Yancey shared his insights into the dangers of financial maximisation, why we should give greater consideration to our future selves, and how we can create a more abundant society. This episode is an edited version of a recent live stream event. You can view the full unedited video of this conversation at futurespodcast.net. Now The modern world is defined by a value system that has narrowed into a money-obsessed condition. In his new book, This Could Be Our Future, a Manifesto for a More Generous World, Yancy Strickler argues that our focus on maximising financial gain has led to a short-term decision making that prioritises what we want and what we need right now. This is fast becoming disruptive to society, but it doesn't have to be this way. By giving a greater consideration to our future selves, the people who rely on us, and the next generation, we can all find ways to create a new society focused on abundance for all. So, Yancey, I want to kick off by asking you, I guess, the, the obvious question why decide to write uh, not just a book, but a manifesto? Um,
1: it's a great question. I, it sort of found me, I think, more than I sought it out. My, my life before Kickstarter was that I was a music critic, a music journalist. And my whole life, all I really cared about was writing. Becoming an entrepreneur was like a, an unexpected sidetrack. I stepped down as the CEO of Kickstarter almost three years ago and wasn't sure what the next project was going to be, but during the last few years at Kickstarter, we had spent a lot of time thinking about the macroeconomic climate that the company resided in. And this led us to become a public benefit corporation, to reclassify Kickstarter from a, a classic for-profit corporation to a public benefit corporation, which is a, a legal structure in the United States where I live, where a company must balance shareholder value with producing a positive benefit to society. And this is a, a, a legal standard. And that move was a long time coming for us, and and led us to do a lot of research and and better understand what these expectations were for for-profit companies and for us, kind of artists and accidental entrepreneurs, who turned into you know founders of a of an important tech company, you know, seeing that water that we swam in, feeling how different our own value system was from it. Uh, just made me very aware of uh, the incentive structure that companies live within, that most startups and for-profit companies live inside of. And now even if you're someone, say, like me and like a lot of people who are trying to do quote unquote the right thing, uh, it's quite difficult. And the systems are kind of optimized for very specific outcomes. And, And the outcome over and over that dominates is whichever choice produces the most money. Um, And so the the, the litmus test, the, the secret code that runs the world is that the right answer in any decision is whichever option makes the most money. And if you just sort of like apply that lens to how the world operates, the world starts to seem a lot more rational. You know, a lot of the ways that regular people are screwed are extremely profitable. You know, forcing people to to raise their incomes through debt rather than through paying them more money increases the money supply, and you get interest on that money after the fact. There's there's all sorts of ways that it makes sense if you just imagine that uh, the end result of every decision is someone um, you know making more money than they would in, in another path. And so, you know, I I wanted to understand the history of that idea. And and I I wanted to understand the sort of the philosophical underpinnings of it, and and I felt that through Kickstarter, both what the company did and how we approached the structure of the company, it was obvious to me that there were other paths available, and the notion that all options funnel down to this one way, that all all ideas must be optimized for profit maximization, uh, that that's just absurd. That that's just simply. Uh, the first and most powerful funnel that exists, but it's not going to be the last one. And so even our our shift to becoming a PBC and and even the notion of crowdfunding, where ideas are being supported not for financial self-interest, not for selfish, rational, quote-unquote rational reasons, uh, but to help someone, to be a part of something for all sorts of other valid reasons, other values that are also real and that also drive human behavior and that get lost in, in a profit-dominated world. So I was motivated by my own personal experience and also just a real belief that these are all things that are changeable because this ideology entered the bloodstream more recently than we think. We Many of us have watched this change happen in our lifetimes, which says that this change and this world that we live in is is impermanent. And it can evolve somewhere else, especially if we have a conscious vision of what that somewhere else should be.
0: That idea of financial maximization—I mean, that's really the problem that's at the core of this book. And I just wonder: how does this idea of financial maximization—how does it really encompass the entire predicament we find ourselves in in society today?
1: You know the way the way I talk about being made aware of it was uh, I used to live in New York City, lived in New York for twenty years. And in the Lower East Side where I lived, there was uh, an old place called Mars Bar. It was a punk dive bar uh, that had been there forever. And one day it got torn down and it got replaced by a new bank, a TD bank, a, br- a bank branch. And at the time, there were already three other branches of this exact same bank within a fifteen minute walk of that same corner. And I lived right around the corner from it and couldn't understand how this was happening. It was like there was this virus infecting the neighborhood overnight, just flipping storefronts into chains. And learned that more than a thousand bank branches opened across New York City over those years, shutting down local businesses. So, like, what is the justification for this? I, as someone who lives in the neighborhood, you know, I I probably lose out in that situation. You know, mom and pop shops closing is is a net negative for the neighborhood. So what is the justification? Well, the justification is real estate speculation. Uh, The justification is large mortgage payments that have to be remade and those get forced on smaller businesses who can't remake it and then. It eventually swifts over to chains who can pay that amount of money. Basically, that the reason why certain things die and certain things survive, the reason why entrepreneurship has shrunk uh, and the market caps of companies have risen is because everything's operating according to this philosophy, which is just simply trying to amass economic power, using that economic power to change the rules in your favor, to encourage more, more of a monopolistic environment, and to just more and more secure market share, secure mind share. And in the book, I show how this is a process that really began in the early 1970s with the financialization of the economy. Uh, But you could see the cultural change. And that's what I think is really profound. Um, I I show a study that UCLA here in the United States has done for about 50 years, where every year they interview incoming college freshmen, so 18, 19-year-olds, and ask them about their goals in life. And one of the goals in life has to do with money, uh, being well off financially. And in 1970, the percentage of college freshmen who said being rich was essential or very important was just 28%. The most important life goal that year, 1970, was to, quote, develop a meaningful philosophy on life with 84% of college students saying that was essential or very important. The most recent year this study came out, in 2017, the percentage of college freshmen who said being rich was essential or very important was 82%. The percentage who said having a meaningful philosophy in life was was less than half. And if you chart like all 15 values that are being uh, asked each year, the growth of the belief in being rich is by far the biggest change. The, the desire to become an artist, the desire to have a family, uh, the desire to excel in your career, all those things are, are fairly constant. It's this, this belief in wealth has really grown. And so I, I think our, the value system of society shifted from moral values, beliefs of what is right and wrong, to economic value. It's something that is tradable, that's ownable, uh, that's universal, and that is exploitable, and gives power, gives gives individual power, reinforces an individualistic culture, and so to me that has been the shift, is sort of the the power of humanistic values. Those things have all shifted to economic value, and we're relying on price and money to basically be the proxy for everything else, and we've been told that. If we do that long enough, and in every way, it will eventually work itself out. Uh, the prices, you know, the markets will settle things out. But you know, we're we're 50 years into this experiment.
0: But partly you mentioned the 1970s. But partly, it wasn't it the Rand Corporation and then the emergence of game theory that really forced this idea of how we should build businesses and and how we should build society.
1: Yeah, I mean, game theory was really important for uh, a couple of reasons. I mean, this, this was developed at the Rand Corporation uh, after World War II, sort of to, to strategize for the Cold War. And game theory is just simply a, a mathematical process that lets you see basically every potential outcome, you know, outcomes on outcomes, how, how events might change. The challenge with game theory is that it presumes that interactions are competitive, are not cooperative, that interactions are zero-sum. And that basically what game theory nets out is that the rational uh, desire for an individual in any sort of scenario is to maximize their personal self-interest. And this is where you get things like Prisoner's Dilemma, where you're taught that the rational choice for your self-interest is to rat out a friend, uh, because that's what satisfies your immediate needs. This, which is like an extremely valid mathematical concept, got applied more broadly as a philosophical defense of individualism. And of the idea that the notion that we have uh, shared responsibilities is a fiction, um, and that's something that they're just telling you to do to try to control you. But in reality, we are all individuals, and we have, you know, no responsibility for anyone or anything else. This this is what Thatcher represented. This is a you know a lot of the personal responsibility movement is really about. It's all about the individual and there is no collective obligation. But really, that mindset is about freeing those who have resources from having any obligation. It's trying to negate that cultural value of looking out for your neighbor. You know, the way I've come to visualize it, you know, the in tech we have like tech stacks of like, you know, you have your database, you have your back-end architecture, your front-end architecture, and then you know, finally your, your graphic interface for end user. I think values function the same way, where at the bottom left layer at the database level, there's like cultural and moral values and beliefs, the things that you believe are right and wrong that are unique to you and your society. But built on top of those cultural values are rules and laws and norms. So laws are an expression of our cultural beliefs. The reason why we say certain things are right and wrong is a reflection of some deeper moral core. And then finally, built on top of those rules and laws are metrics and incentives. How do we measure the outcomes of our our expressions of value? Um, And so each of these sort of layers onto the next. So it's like moral, cultural, rules on top of that, and metrics and incentives on top of that. What's happened over the past 40 years is that the incentive layer, which today is money, has gotten all the power. Incentives are being used to rewrite the rules. The rules are being used to reset cultural values. And instead of being a society oriented from a moral, cultural value space and building on top of that, we become a society rooted on an incentive layer and sort of reverse engineering our world around that. So to me, the, the challenge then is, is how do you change that cultural, moral level at, at the deepest root level, right? Because if you change at the root level, then other things start to build and cascade from there. Um, and so the theory I come up, come up with in the book, which is about expanding how we define self-interest, and expanding as a result, how we define value, uh, to me, is that kind of cultural cultural moral change where it's it's like our sense of obligation changes from just now individuality, uh, immediate, short-term individualism, which I think is the religion of the West today, to something that is more actively aware. And I, I think and if you look at history, you could argue that, Human history has been a, a progression of consciousness, a raising of consciousness, and to me, the next logical extens- extension of consciousness is to the network, is to each other. Like that is a, a reflection of how the technology is changing us, and as something like what we're going through now shows us, it's also just true that that we do have tremendous influence on one another. You know, th- this is these are all just like visualizations, kind of a UI to imagine what is a very complicated process, but. I think something like that is what has changed. And, and I think that is how it changes again.
0: I mean, to a degree, all of that has led us to define value through these very simple things. In, in, in the West, it's well, across the world, in fact, it's the idea of GDP. We use GDP as the only effective measure of value. But as you say in the book, in actual fact, GDP is a very ineffective way to measure value.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great proxy for the things it's meant to measure. It certainly has a re- wealth has a relationship to other traits and qualities, but the notion that you aim for something that is at best a possibly a distant proxy of what is actually important, I think is problematic. You know this is this is where you're seeing the paradigm shift beginning to happen with uh, the New Zealand, Iceland, Finland, and Scotland all shifting to national governments oriented around well-being, human well-being, trying to numerically and mathematically define uh, what that is, to define the the spheres of well-being that the state must think about, the spheres that markets will think about. Um, to me, that is like absolutely uh, the right kind of change coming. Also, Amsterdam shifting to Kate Raworth's donut uh, donut economics for how it's orienting its its city government. Um, all these, you know, all these are states led by women uh, who are embracing uh, what to me is a more actively aware, a more holistic notion of of value and of self. And and it's just it's it's to me it's a progression because it's not. It's not refuting the importance of GDP. It's not refuting the importance of wealth. It's it's yes, ending it. It's building on top of it, right? History is building on top of History is not revolutions and ripping off the last thing and replacing it with something new. Generally, we build on top of what's there. And so the the reason why I think this progression of an expansion of self-interest and an expansion of value is the right kind of path is because, it is still a progressive one. Like we are still growing. We're just learning to grow different types of value rather than only financial value. Um, so it's still letting us have that target to work towards. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that that the there is a a widespread feeling. Really, because of how exaggerated the past 20 years have been economically, Uh, there's a much stronger feeling um, that there is a need for a shift. That the anomalies of the system that we are in have added up for too long, Um, and so you see people willing to to take a chance. And and I and what's exciting about this is that the the technological moment that we're in, with the amount of data, things we're able to measure, uh, the amount of ways that we interact with one another, we're able to better see and perceive makes the embrace of new forms of value or the measurement of new kinds of interactions possible for the first time ever, right? At any other point in history, how would you possibly measure things like this? Or how would you, how would you define, uh, you know, you would have a month-long Socratic dialogues about what loyalty means. You know, today, loyalty is maybe something that a, a team spends a year trying to create the right algorithm to try to identify a, a loyal interaction when they see one, right? And so I think that that is sort of like where we are now. And how technology and value are, are going to interact. And I believe that what it will eventually produce is something that we may grow to call post-capitalism, where we are uh, creating transactions, green-lighting projects based on the growth of values on top of financial value. So Projects will have to meet some financial minimum, but really they're optimizing for a, a community benefit, or a sustainability benefit, or a, a some pro-social uh, benefit. Um, And that this will be something that we'll be able to do intelligently, uh, rationally. It won't be like a political choice. It will be something that we can all see uh, as value creating.
0: What are some of those values that you think we should actually prioritise? Instead of just purely money and finance, what would you actually like us to see prioritise?
1: I mean, the ones I would think about are fairness. I think fairness is a, is a really interesting thing to think about, like to, to try to calculate the fairness of systems. If you try to think about the, say, distribution of social goods from a perspective of fairness, it gets into a lot of interesting questions about uh, deservability. I think you get into like interesting reverse Dutch auctions of like need with ability to pay. Uh, But I think fairness is one that's important to think about. Uh, Certainly the sustainability of our practices. You know, if there's a a sort of a, a language that we develop to know for how long we can continue doing something that we're doing. Purpose, sense of purpose, sense of like consistently working towards something. To me, one of the hardest things as an individual or as a company, you know, you can know where you want to go, but how do you consistently make choices in that direction over time? Some way of like uh, guiding you towards that end. I think a awareness is something that's interesting. I mean, like the ability, ability for us to understand how much we are perceiving or not perceiving. But in the book, you know, the example that I write about um, that is being used today, and I think is the type of like very specific application is Adele distributing concert tickets using a loyalty algorithm. Um, So Adele trying to break uh, scalpers reselling tickets for hundreds of thousands of dollars more and using an algorithm that would approximate how loyal a fan was to her as an artist and to distribute tickets based on like the top percentile in each market. Um, There's a dystopian version of this, which is like the Chinese social credit system where like you don't get into a restaurant or something unless you're loyalty or whatever scores so high, uh, there's a utopian, utopian version of this, which is that Adele created a post-capitalist transaction that solves a financial minimum and then optimizes for a non-financial maximum uh, on top of that. And in that way, it's not an altruistic choice. It is a value maximizing choice, but just with a, a different framework of value uh, that we currently think of it. You know, So I think that there are a couple other examples that have happened recently. I mean, one was in the US uh, the people that provide the SATs, which is a standardized test, uh, all anyone going to college takes, they had built an algorithm to try to produce a hardship score where they would analyze a student's background to sort of like change their score based on their personal hardship. To me, that was like a, a fascinating attempt to do this. Um, and so you're seeing that kind of thing of like, how do we measure these sort of social interactions that we have? You know, it's gonna. I don't know if it'll ever get to be so clear of like a pitchfork album score. We're like, whoa, this is a nine point one. I should check this out or whatever. But I think that we will get to a notion of what is harmful uh, and what is helpful um, to different spaces of value. That a bank going into a neighborhood and say replacing a local grocer could be judged as a net negative when viewed from a wider set of value perspectives than. Who could pay the most rent?
0: I mean the great thing about you, Yancey, is you've had firsthand experiences of trying to get people to rethink uh, what they value. And and the example of that is Kickstarter. I mean, in what way did the formation of Kickstarter and all the lessons you learnt whilst building and running Kickstarter contribute to the central thesis in this book? Tremendously. Tremendously. I mean,
1: kind of the core conceit of Kickstarter from the very beginning, it was it was Perry Chen that um, first had the idea for Kickstarter. You know, Perry had the idea for crowdfunding, and we started thinking about how this would work for creative projects, because that's the world that we both came from. And and it was just so obvious that in the world of the early 2000s, um, if you are a filmmaker or a musician or a writer, you know, you're going to a book publisher, a record label, a film studio, a giant corporation... And you're trying to convince them that you're going to be a hit, that them putting money into your project will make them money, and you go into that room and you're looking to sell them on that fact, and you're willing to like contort your idea to meet their expectations. Uh, this is what you're expected to do as an artist. If you don't do that, then you're screwed. If you don't do that, then you have to rely on personal wealth, or you go into debt, or it just takes you a really long time to do anything. Um, so we were very struck by the notion that. The whole creative industry functioned on this idea that the only good ideas were profitable ones, were ones that were likely to be profitable. And that system didn't even perform that well to begin with either. I mean, it had plenty of misses. And so the notion of Kickstarter was if you provide a place where people can contribute to an idea and there is no hope of financial upside, because from the very beginning, we said if you put money into a project, you don't get money in return. You get a copy of what's made, you get to be a part of it, you get a a social credit, but you don't get a financial credit, that people will still do that. And in fact, a greater diversity of projects and ideas will be funded if the reasons for funding and Encompass a, bro- a broader swath of possible reasons other than just financial motives. So on Kickstarter project is funded uh, because uh, the neighborhood needs it, because it's a cool tech, and people who know technology think it's rad, because the creator is cute, because they did good things in the past, because they've you know earned some loyalty. It's a multitude of reasons, none of which are financial upside. And so through that, $5 billion almost has changed hands for irrational projects from any economic perspective, 150,000 ideas, in a way that completely breaks the traditional economic paradigm of why money should change hands. And so to me, that really showed, um, number one, that the reasons for acting are far broader than we think, and that uh, creating space for other reasons for action is like incredibly beneficial. Just a lot of different things can happen. And number two... The experience I had of watching the world react to Kickstarter and watching this idea become something that people really believed in was really eye-opening to me because I kept waiting for like some group of suits and a clipboard to come by and knock on our door and just like check that we met all the standards for like changing things. You know, I kept waiting for like the people in charge to say, all right, you're good. Here's your green stamp. And the fact that the platform and the idea had such an effect, honestly, really scared me at first, because it made me realize that that probably meant most things were as changeable as this had been, and that most things had probably come, in, come to be in a similar way our thing had been. And I suddenly felt like the world was less stable uh, than I thought it was.
0: What you were doing with Kickstarter is you really you challenged the status quo, and there's so many challenges that come with challenging the status quo. And I just wonder how did people look at you back then when you suggested this, this new model, and how, in the end, did you manage to convince them?
1: Well, creative people, artists almost always got it. You know, you would talk to someone who's an artist, you're like, listen, you can go straight to your fans instead of going out, going to your label. And you know, artists would be immediately like, yeah, totally. Most of the first investors in Kickstarter were artists who we would pitch the idea. And then some of them had done well enough that they're like, "Whoa, can I like, do you want help doing this? People who came from the business side, their reaction would be, would always be, so I get a piece, right? Like if I put 20 grand into, you know, whatever, whatever movie, I get a piece. Like if it's a blockbuster, I get a cut. And we would explain you know, no, like that that was not the intention. And that just like made zero sense. And so there was just a, yeah, artists understood it. Fans understood it, right? Like I knew I would give whatever amount of money to David Lynch to do whatever he wanted, you know, and I would be thrilled to do that. I would be thrilled. But for people that didn't come from the art world, the mindset was more like, I mean, someone once said, like, isn't there already too much art in the world? And so there, so there is that kind of mindset. But you know what was amazing is that once it was out in public it went, it didn't like immediately take off it was like a slow build but it was immediately validated by creative people looking at this and saying yes this this is that thing i needed this is the way i can do that project that's going to cost 6 grand to do that like no way am i going to like put that on my credit card You know, that's a lot of money. That's like three months rent. You know, it's hard for me to do that. But I also think it would be awesome. I wish I could do it right. So there was this, it created this door where it ends up there. It always needed to be a door, but no one realized it, you know, and there, and there just got very methodically validated. And, and once it was out in the public, no one was asking for that financial upside, right? Like that conversation disappeared. That conversation only existed uh, with trying to get money from people who have money. And so it's it's those demands of those people that then inch their way into a startup and then inch their way down to a user that then create, you know, predatory terms of use. You know, it's, it's that it, it starts at such a high level. It starts at that moral cultural level. Right. And it, it just reaches all the way down and through.
0: I have to think of the example of Oculus Rift and and what happened when they sold to <laughs> Facebook because then that entire model was questioned. You were so successful yeah. in challenging the status quo, and then suddenly this Kickstarter-funded project gets bought by a large corporation like Facebook, and it feels like everybody has a little chip on their shoulder over the fact that they didn't get a yeah. cut over the billions of dollars that sold to Facebook. And what we began to see uh, was us reverting back to those old value systems yet again. And I think in the US you had. And, and correct me if I'm wrong. You had something called regulation or Reg A, which was going to argue for the fact that people could put in small bits of money and get small bits of of the company. So, do you feel that that was the this sort of the old system pushing back on Kickstarter that you were almost there, were challenging the status quo, and yet the status quo challenged you?
1: Yeah, it was hard. The, you know, Oculus. When Oculus went up on Kickstarter, you know Palmer Luckey, the creator. I mean, he was he was literally a teenager in his garage. You know, it was like a demo, and the video was just all these great gamer people being like, "Holy! Sh- I just tried this. Holy shit!" You know, it was it was awesome, and then he built the technology that lived up to that. Yeah, and then the yeah the Facebook acquisition was was yeah it was very challenging, right? It was it was challenging to the value system, mm. um, and it was hard because you know. We would never ask anyone to bind themselves to certain terms by using Kickstarter, because that's like even 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 if those terms said you can't revert to the old game, because even if you said any restrictions, it is still kind of the old game. The opportunity there would have been for Oculus and Facebook to have found a way, to have found a way to acknowledge that, right? Where maybe you say, we get that legally this existed in a different kind of way, but we know that from a social perspective, and the way that people feel about Oculus, and the, how important this community has been to Oculus, we're going to try to do this other step. I mean, I bet that that was there for them. Knowing the Oculus founders, I'm sure that they would have liked for that to happen. But you're talking about Facebook and a giant public traded company. It's a clash of those value systems, right? And it shows you it shows you which value system is more powerful. Uh, it's the one it's the one that writes the checks that still ultimately has that power. But you know, but that's changing, right? Because, like, it's a small thing, but I saw the video last week of the 17-year-old kid who's running the biggest COVID-19 website, like, database thing, and the fact that he's refusing to put any ads up, right? Like, there's still this, like, there's still this don't-sell-out mindset that exists. That's um, certainly a part of Kickstarter's ethos and comes from our background in the music industry uh, and, like, the creative industries. But, yeah, the, the, the Oculus moment was tough. There has been, there is like equity crowdfunding in the U.S. There's, there's a lot more of it in the U.K. and it's been much more successful in the U.K. than the U.S. But generally here, you know, the projects going out looking for money on those platforms are tend to not be the most attractive kinds of investments. There's a, you know, community-oriented projects I think are great, uh, but I think the notion that this could be the great democratizer to where you could be the angel investor in Facebook, which is what you know people were sort of promising. I think that's unlikely to happen. And to me, more than just continuing to expand the application of the existing paradigm of how money should be used, which is money should be used to maximize more money, uh, that instead the more interesting move is to justify the use of money for new reasons. So basically, uh, to me, I think the, the pivot that's beginning to happen now, and we're seeing it with like the funding into vaccine research, is to see investing financial resources into the production or growth of non-financial values is rational, and it's something that should be done. And that only using money To further create more money is a very limited notion of the use of a a very useful tool. Uh, But yet we trapped ourselves to where the only good ideas, like the world of creative projects before Kickstarter, the only good ideas are ones that can beat the S&P annualized return, right? There's still that invisible litmus test. Um, That's why like PPE material wasn't being made fast enough, right? Just wasn't quite profitable enough. So, So you need these other value systems, you need these other orientations to drive behavior that just that that profit orientation isn't, isn't going to speak to.
0: Do you think, in that case, it's, it's sometimes less about challenging our definition of value and instead challenging our definition of success? Because, in so many ways, success is very much tied to financial wealth and, and gaining financial resources. So th- Do you think we should start with how we look at success in the world before we start looking at value?
1: I think those things are very tied because I think that behavior role models do a tremendous amount to shift behavior. You know, I feel like I watched it's a it's a minor moment, but I feel like I, I watched as like a uh, the cultural role model moved from Julian Casablancas of The Strokes to Mark Zuckerberg, right? There is this moment where it's like the the height of culture is to be a uh, an, a creative person who doesn't give a fuck, right? That's like The Strokes. And then the height of Culture becomes to be a business person who doesn't give a fuck, but who also makes lots and lots of money. So I think that these role models do a lot. They sort of like draw a bullseye on the board. If I look at the growth of the belief in being wealthy, I think you see a shift in those cultural values. But I think that is changing, right? Like in that same UCLA poll over the last few years, there's been a, an emerging answer, which is to, of like, what's important, and that's to quote, be a values entrepreneur which is their term they use for someone who's just trying to shift values through, whether that's through activism or starting a nonprofit or whatever it is that they want to do. Um, But that is something that is uh, starting to enter the scene. I think that success equaling being rich is like a loud message that exists in the world today. I I think the more apt message is success equals probably secure and self-coherent, secure and living in integrity with who you are and where you are in life. It is possible for all of us to achieve that. And that there is a sort of us chasing this moving target of reaching a level of financial satisfaction, which will never happen in the way that we want it to. That that is just that that's a that's a dead end street, right? That 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 leads nowhere. Um, Even for the richest person in the world, they look at their money as like all this money still needs to earn at least ten percent this year, right? This money doesn't count. It's all still about like the compounding yet to come. You know, I think we've just tied ourselves in this in this strange knot. But new kinds of voices are rising. There's definitely a new rise of like solidarity, uh, the concept of solidarity among young people. Uh, I think like. Covid, you know, sort of plays more into those kinds of emotions and feelings. So I feel like we've already had the peak of individualism, near-term individualism. I think that we're in the we're in the the crumbling of that empire at the moment, and that we're shifting to something more like post individualism, where yes, it's incredibly important that we're all individuals, that we all have something special about us. At the same time, the fact that we're all individuals and that we all have something special about us makes that less important. And so we can, we can both celebrate our individuality and celebrate our shared traits. I think that is like a post-individualism, where it's not trying to put back in the box the fact that we're all unique. It's just saying, yeah, but that's not the greatest thing. like, It doesn't stop there, right? And the same thing with the shift of post-capitalism, the notion of Financial value being the only value, that everything must be pegged to that, that if we maximize that one value set and then translate everything after the fact it will work, instead we're going to shift to post-capitalism, where we acknowledge that the spectrum of value sets that we should be building is larger than just financial value. Financial value is absolutely critically important, but there are probably four or five others that are just as important, and that we can very easily learn to manage a society in which we think about all those things, and that this is just the the level of complexity the sort of the the level we've graduated to just demands this of us shit's going to get a little harder so what you know we we can handle this every business person handles this every person handles this in their lives um and so this is that this is that transition moment i believe
0: you actively experimented with rethinking value by turning kickstarter into a public benefit corporation a, a pbc as it's known uh, in the us uh, what made this different from other silicon valley companies and, and and what did you learn from the process of actually going through turning uh, this large organization into a public benefit corporation
1: well we we've always been purpose driven like we'd always said from the beginning we don't want to sell out we don't want to try to go public like the Kickstarter success is it being meaningful to the creative community over the long term. And so that, you know, that that was always there, but as a for-profit company, the legal expectation is that we would be maximizing shareholder value and and as our lawyer would remind us from time to time, the fact that we spoke so loudly about the fact that we didn't do that put us at some theoretical risk. And in fact, if if Kickstarter survived to such a day that say us as Co-founders are no longer alive, and someone else is running the company. Then, the company can be however shitty that person wants it to be. There's nothing actually limiting them from doing that. And in fact, the shareholders at that point in time could say, "Hey, you must like, you know, fire everybody and maximize profits right now." Um, and so, to protect ourselves from that, we we really needed to put ourselves in a category that truly represented who and what we are. And so this is when we we learned of the public benefit corporation designation, which just happened in 2013. We learned about it after Patagonia uh, made this change. You know, I was CEO when we made this shift, and our charter includes like 12 to 15 different provisions, um, some of which are specific to the business. There's one section that was just like, let's imagine a code of conduct for like a good business. Let's imagine like Goldman Sachs could follow this. And that's included things like a pledge that the company would never use legal but esoteric tax avoidance strategies, that the company would never lobby for public policies that benefited the corporation but not our end users, that the company would never try to claim legal rights from its users that it didn't actually need to operate its business. And all these sorts of ways, it's just like, what is the fair thing to do? Like, we know that the law is absolutely tilted in the favor of corporations. We know that we could take advantage in all these sorts of ways. What is the way that you like? sort of lay down that sword and say, we're, we're coming to you as just a, as an honest person. So there's a lot of things like that. What I didn't know at the time was how much will this actually change things on a practical level? And what I found is that it actually had quite a material impact. You know, these were values that we'd cared about um, the way that we thought about things, but in the past, they were maybe like guardrails that you would bump into if you got a little astray but instead as a pbc when they were like in a charter of our legally held responsibilities they felt more like things i was compelled to do that we must do on a daily basis it's not just like don't break this it's like actually like express this manifest this um and so the way that we thought about our responsibilities as a company changed we became much more activist we'd always been activisty became even more so um we did things like create the creative independent which is a completely non-revenue producing project but that elevates the voice of creative people and just tried to sort of live up to this larger value set and and try to imagine our responsibility in a bigger way. Kickstarter has seen nothing but benefit from that. Nothing but benefit from that. You know, it's uh, it's a strong signal that you're not a Silicon Valley company to the to the market for for the people that it's most important to Kickstarter, the the creator community, the backer community. It, it lets those people know that we're not trying to like get rich on their backs. Like, kind of, you know, who you're dealing with here. And and, and my my personal belief is that you know there's about 5000 pbc's in america at this point i believe i don't know that the pbc model itself is going to grow but i think the pbc mindset and expectations are going to do a reverse takeover of c corps I think eventually every company in America is going to function in this way. It's going to happen from market pressure. It's going to happen from to try to appeal to a certain workforce, to a certain clientele and customer base. But I think there is a race to the top that's happening there that is going to put these sorts of non-financial responsibilities, non-financial values, more and more into the hands of corporations in a way that is going to kind of be what people have been agitating for, like capitalism to take more responsibility on the one hand. On the other hand, it might end up resulting in companies having even more power, um, which is why, say, the bailouts, you know, the, the stimuluses that have been happening here in the US, jobs are being destroyed by the millions, stocks are going up by the billions. Uh, and it's because the, the changes that are happening now are just simply reinforcing that same power structure. Uh, companies are getting stronger and stronger and stronger like that's the macro game of of this era of the Trump era it's just companies are getting stronger the state and other institutions are getting weaker that is why the stock market goes up companies are going to be taking on more and more of that responsibility it's going to get weird you know we, we might we might get to like procter and gamble sponsoring housewives around the world and like paying them a ubi like to be ambassadors, right? Like I can imagine a world where companies are providing UBIs to their most loyal customers as a way to create brand power. Uh, I think the level of weirdness that we're gonna head to in terms of who steps up, um, especially when states fail to step up on these new frontier values is really gonna reorient uh, how we think about responsibility. I think it's gonna get strange.
0: Do you really think that UBI or universal basic income is a solution? Or is again, does that just feel like another byproduct of financial maximization? Or would it be better to talk about things like universal basic services?
1: My instinct has been to think that the notion of the UBI is like very much a solution of this financial maximization age where the answer to a problem is just to give away money. You know, it's just like it's it's like when you the whole world is honey, the answer is honey. Right. You know, so I think I think there's a little bit of it's a reflection of this time. I think of it as like, can we guarantee everyone's now me? You know, can we guarantee everyone the the bottom two rungs of Maslow's hierarchy I think most society, you know, European uh, societies tend to do that. You provide for physical safety through laws and police. I mean, that's in every society. In Europe, you also provide healthcare. So you provide for that kind of physical safety. You know, but I think that like, to me, it's more that how how can we answer people's now me needs in a way that people can lift their sights higher, where people can think more about a purpose in life can think more about their obligations to each other can think more about uh, the world their children are going to step into and i do think that's hard if those bottom rungs of your maslow's hierarchy are empty right it's it's hard to move forward beyond that so i understand ubi is like how how do we guarantee that kind of security to everybody and i get the simplicity of that my instinct is is that the answer is more like services than than cash but you know, i I have no. I root for everyone. You know, I I root. I, I root for. I root for a solution.
0: Funny thing is, in the the book, you actually look at models for individuals, how individuals can change their value set. and Oddly enough, uh, the way in which you can change your value set is tied to Japanese lunch. It's called uh, bentoism. Could you explain what bentoism is and and how that changes our relationship with, with things like the future me and the now me?
1: I was like pulling on this thread of our self-interest being too limited. Like we think of our self-interest as like this game theory, now me. That's all that really matters. Um and one day in my notebook I was doodling and I drew like a hockey stick graph, a chart of a line going up and to the right. Whatever your self-interest is, it's growing so fast the line goes up and to the right. I suddenly was looking at this and had this thought of like don't both these axes on this graph keep going like the x axis measuring time it extends far out from now into the future and the y axis measuring your self interest money power you know fame whatever it also keeps growing and i thought as our self interest grows it grows in its dimensionality it goes from me to us the more self interest you have the more responsibility you have like the difference between being single and having a family is huge or being a worker or being an entrepreneur is huge. And so suddenly, this like little graph of a hockey stick graph was suddenly with this much bigger space. And I uh, drew boxes around and created a very simple two by two chart. Um, and I thought this is a this is actually a, a, a more true map of self-interest, where in that space where there's the the hockey stick graph, that space is now me what I want and need right now. This is how we think of self-interest today. But in the bottom right corner of this two-by-two is future me, the older, wiser version of myself, the the Obi-Wan Kenobi version of me uh, that looks back through time and tells me what matters, helps me make the right choice. Um, In the top left, there's now us my family, my friends, whatever my responsibilities are, those people and in the top right corner is future us, uh, my kids or everybody else's kids. And I thought as I looked at this, I thought, wow, every every choice I make leaves a footprint in each of these faces, now me, future me, now us, future us. But yet I'm blind to everything but now me. Like I know that the future matters, I know that like other people in my life matter, but I really have a hard time conceptually holding on to those things. And and here was, it seemed to be an expression of like what was actually going on in my head. And so after I drew this chart, I wrote, what is this a graph of? And I just wrote a description. I wrote, beyond near-term orientation. I thought, this is a graph to help me see my beyond my near-term orientation. And then I suddenly looked at that and realized it was an acronym for bento. And I thought about the Japanese bento box. And the bento box has four compartments in a lid. It derives from a word meaning convenience. And the beauty of the bento is that because of its compartments, it lets you hold a variety of dishes, not too much of any one thing. So it's always a balanced meal. And the bento also honors a Japanese dieting philosophy called Harahachi Bu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. So I thought, oh, I've, what I've drawn here, it's a bento for my choices and my self-interest. It's a way for me to not just gorge myself on now me. Uh, but for a way to for me to really keep in mind the now us of my family, my, my responsibilities to other people, my future me, who I really want to become in life, my ultimate potential, and then future us. Like what what's the world the, that's going to be left after I'm gone? Um, and so this has become a way that I make choices. It's a way that I identify my priorities. It's a way that I teach workshops to help people find their values. But it's simply a way to... Expand our awareness beyond just this now me space and to allow us to see the full impact of choices. and and the need for this is so acute because when we only see now me, then decisions that may be sacrificed the near term for a longer term benefit, those look like bad, those look like bad options or choices that are good for us now but are bad for us in the long term. Those look like good options, right? When we don't see the whole picture, we tell ourselves we're making good choices, but really we're, we're, we're committing acts of self-harm. I think that this expansion of perspective, whether the, the bento language is, like, is what ultimately sticks or not, I believe this expansion of perspective is what's happening right now with COVID-19 for sure. The future, the us, the collective spaces are much more clear. Um, and I think that this is a kind of a map for how we might imagine post-capitalist values working. For how we might imagine our shared responsibilities working, and how we might imagine new spaces of opportunity working. So, For example, I think that there could be companies that serve the future us space. There could be a certain type of entrepreneur who works on future me or now us kinds of problems. I I believe that this is a map of whole new frontiers of ways to provide value to each other and a way to work towards this larger goal of not just Maximizing now me financial value, but to pursue coherence, to pursue choices that are really in line with all these spaces, and 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 show that greater awareness.
0: It's one thing to aspire towards having a better relationship with your future self, but it's really hard to do that, isn't it? It's really hard to act in a way to to make that happen, and I I guess. How do we keep ourselves accountable to our future selves? I use what
1: are basically like method acting techniques, um, where I will try to step into those roles. E- even the choice I made to write this book, I used something like that. I, d- I used a process to come up with five different possible career paths as the next step, and then spent a day... Uh, pretending I was each one of those things and allowed that day of like pretending I was a teacher, pretending I was a journalist, pretending I was like making some video project, allowed that experience to tell me what was right or wrong for me. Um, and so for me, like stepping into my future me space, stepping to all these spaces is something I do on a weekly basis. So I have like a weekly practice where I basically journal and try to step into these spaces, picture my now us, picture my future us, picture my future me, which I really do picture (laughs) Obi-Wan. I really do picture like the hologram Obi-Wan. And I just, I try to be quiet and almost meditate with those spaces. And, and just, they tell me what's important. Like my now us, I'll reflect Okay, now us, what do you say matters? And my now us will say, Hey, you and your wife haven't had like a date time together in a week, like plan something or call these friends or you know, think of this way that you could be more giving. And these are things that my my system one thinking brain, my passive reactive brain are not, isn't thinking about. That part of my mind is just thinking like self-promote, whatever, go get what's mine, just selfish shit, like very, very selfish stuff. And so I just get used to engaging with these things. And now these voices are more natural to me. I will default to selfish now me thinking. I don't want to, I aspire to more than that. I don't always do that. Uh, but it's hard to not always do. You know, the, the moments where it's hard to not do that. And so, to me, something like the bento framework is like a mental scaffolding. It's like a tool of love that's just saying, "Hey, here's the stuff that's hard to keep in mind, but is extremely important. And here's just a here's the way to force you to do that. Here's a muscle memory, um, and also here is possibly a map towards greater meaning." greater coherence in your life, greater opportunity, Um, here's what to look for beyond the now me of survival. It's simply making you aware of what you actually think. And that's that's meaningful, because when you know what you actually think, then you can act according to what you actually believe, uh, and your choices likely change.
0: Yancey, it, it would be irresponsible of me not to mention the elephant in the room, which is the current crisis. And I just wonder how COVID nineteen is changing our uh, ways in which we're acting. Are you seeing uh, more people acting for now me, or are you hopeful that we're going to start acting for things like future us?
1: This is this is a total now us future us space. You know, normally when I do my bento, I start with now me because that's the thing that's the most obvious to me. Um, but that week, when I looked at Now Me, I had no idea what did I want. I had no, I had no clue. But when I saw Now Us, I instantly knew. I have a, I have a four year old. I'm a homeschool teacher for half a day now. I instantly knew. Oh, now Us, like I, I know absolutely what my responsibilities are. And in that moment, I realized, whoa, my entire orientation has shifted, right? I'm I'm very us oriented now. Um, You know, I'm only as safe as my neighbor and my neighbor's neighbor. And suddenly it's like the, I I see the world very differently. I think that's likely to stay for a while. There is the weird thing of the hyper isolation that kind of balances that out. Uh, But I feel like the fact that we exist beyond now me, that the future is real and coming. We could see that as we see like, where all the Aldi were 10 days behind Italy sort of ideas, you know, as the crisis was first happening. But we can also just sort of see that collective space, especially here in the U.S., where we provide very few collective services. You know, the lack of healthcare is going to be more and more of an issue. The best thing that's happening out of it. I mean, I think the global pause is fantastic in many ways. But I'm excited by like the internet, the network, really stepping into its own even more. There's a kind of a collective consciousness. Um, that has been becoming gradually digitized, but is now becoming much more alive, um, to where so many minds are collaborating on the same problem set. Um, we're using this tool uh, to bring ourselves together, and I think that the the benefits that we will see as a result of that are just going to be enormous, enormous. I mean, it's 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 long been my theory that like the the post-internet innovation won't be like AR or AI or whatever, another technological revolution. I think the revolution after the internet is consciousness, is human consciousness, is the the networked organism of all of us. And I don't mean that in a singularity kind of way, but just that we're, we're kind of all neurons responding collectively to this crisis. Like the COVID-19, you know, some parts of our body felt it first and tried to warn the rest of the body. And then the collective consciousness spits out, flatten the curve as like the paradigm to help us understand what needs to happen, and then ra- that rapidly gets dispersed throughout the entire brain, I mean, all of that to me is just like outrageous. It's kind of outrageous. Um, and so I feel a sense of awe at that and believe in its power. And 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 I can imagine a, a universe, say, where Donald Trump is not the president of the United States, where this is like the the scientific Olympics of like the entire world coming together, this amazing moment of cohesion. And that moment is like a hundred percent could be here. that's that's what's supposed to happen now. That's what's supposed to happen,
0: right? Following that macro idea a a little further, do you think COVID-19 might actually expediate some of the changes that you're advocating for in the book? I mean, you put a 30-year time horizon on most of the changes that you expect to see in the book, but do you think in fact COVID-19 could speed that up, or do you think it's actually going to slow that down? Do you think that 30-year horizon is going to now turn into a 50-year horizon?
1: I think I believe in a 30-year theory of change. That's like a generational theory of change. It kind of at the heart of like, why do generational changes happen? Is death. I think that people change their minds left soft, and then people die, and people grew up in a new reality with a new set of cultural norms, and so that we can imagine the sort of the, the median line of opinion kind of changing as certain people die and certain people are, are born, um, and so I think in, you know waves of mass death will be accelerants of change in opinion. Um, in a very brutal kind of way. I don't expect there to be an immediate bounce back towards virtuousness. I mean, maybe in some of these well-being societies, maybe that happens. But I I would expect things to get darker uh, in the near term. But yes, I I believe that we are going to discover that there are other value sets that can orient our machines and that we're going to need those, right? Because the other, the other significant transformation that's happening now will be from human labor to you know, computer labor, to AI, to things like that. Uh, the challenge for a human organization, it's not knowing where you want to go. It's, it's getting a bunch of human beings to get there together and to battling the daily distractions. For an AI system, there will be none of those human distractions, and in fact, whatever metric or target that we set, it theoretically will be able to get there in some way or another. So the question is what are those metrics that we're setting? What are those targets? How are they being informed? How are we thinking about like the the light and the shadow of each of those things? Um, and so to me the importance of metrics and the importance of of defining the values that we want to be optimizing for that we want to prioritize, uh, I think it's just going to become more and more important because it's going to be they're going to be meaningfully running our institutions um, and our systems. And if we allow those systems to operate according to the, the value sets that we run today, then we're going to have systems that optimize for money, power and attention. That's going to be the big three, right? There's not going to be anything else that's going to have room for that. Um, and so I think that that's like I, I look at that as like as the kind of leverage point. I mean the I love the, the Danello Meadows essay about the, the points of leverage in a system. And it's like the the values layers what other things are built upon. I think that all those things do get put more on the table in a in a post-COVID world that, you know, this is climate change fast forward, that there's a lot of that the fact that this is teaching us that it's possible for us to pause the world and to totally change things and that Yes the world ends in some ways but also the world is kind of better in other ways and it's a great dry run and a great a great reminder of of the tenuousness of what's here you know i say all that while fearing it and not and not taking it lightly by any stretch you know all this may be, all this may be adding up to a kind of awe i feel at the ability of, of this thing this tiny thing to so greatly affect us
0: We have a question from YouTube, from Ian Forrester, who's asked you, Yancey, what's your dream post-capitalism for humankind?
1: I keep coming to this idea of coherence, but I feel like the the challenge of the modern world is that we end up self-compromising a lot to provide financial stability for ourselves and that systems on a macro level create a lot of instability and a lot of corruption um, to try to maximize for their own financial self-interest. The world I imagine is, is one where we simply see financial value as a tool that's used to exchange for other values that you know, the idea that the that the richest person on the street is like the happiest person on the street, that that's a move that we abandon, that we imagine that the the most well-off person is the one who's most balanced, the one who has their head on their shoulders, the one who maybe has the middle class job and they don't have to work so much so they get to spend time with their family. You know, I think that there's a a different notion of what it means to be a successful human being that happens. And I think that, I would love to see, in the same way we're seeing human, humanities talents come together around health, I would love to see our talents come together around solving all other problems like you know, loneliness, like how we feel socially connected, like uh, what it means to be a human being through the internet, like uh, the fairness of systems. Um, I think the most important metrics and measurements for shaping the future haven't yet been invented. That's the process of the next 10, 20 years.
0: What happens to those who feel, I guess, trapped by their material circumstances? So it's all very well and good to talk about, you know, let's move towards a post financial future and change and, and, and have new value sets. But what about people who are living paycheck to paycheck where, whereby all they're thinking about is their ability to survive financially? How realistically do they uh, live? With this new value set,
1: if your now me is hard, um, yes, it's it's more difficult uh, to maybe to operate in those other spaces. But I think that say if you look at uh, religious rates, uh, how they how they relate to income level. Generally, the less money you have, the more religious you tend to be. And I would say that for someone whose now me is harder, uh, is a more challenging space. Then you have to lean on the now us of your. Of your community, your community of your church, your family. You also have to think about the future me of salvation and the afterlife to give your life purpose and meaning, right? If you, if your day to day is hard, then what is the purpose of that day to day? Well, there is this larger goal of trying to live a, a worthy life. I think for someone who's extremely wealthy, the material, the challenges with materialism are of one of materialistic abundance that can cause you to. Uh, lose sight of your obligations to other people. That can cause you. That can cause loneliness. That can create a, a separateness from society. Um, so I think too much or too little can ironically have a similar kind of outcome. So I would say that maybe the wealthier person has more time. You know, maybe maybe that's the one thing that can be said. Um, but. If you look at, like, religious doctrine, if you look at the Bible, you know, Jesus would say that it's it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go into heaven, right? The notion that wealth is something that blocks you from... So sort of that liberation blocks you from your greatest potential. Again, we're in a world today where that, that incentive layer of, of money rules the show. So we think that that having that money is nirvana. right? We, we, we automatically assume that people have that, have what they need, and that people that don't have that, don't have what they need. And I would argue that really that's just like one of probably five or six things that you need. And yes, it can make other stuff, it can balance other things out. But I don't, think that's, I don't think that's the answer on its own. So I think the ability to, to self-actualize, the, to, the ability to be more coherent, I think that might have an inverse relationship to wealth. I mean, you know, monks are impoverished for a reason, right? So, so I think that we're maybe a little bit trapped in the, in the orthodoxy of today and assuming who this may be valuable for.
0: Another question that follows on from the idea of the orthodoxy of today is from James uh, Poxon on YouTube, who asks, uh, in what way do you feel that cultures are built on historical precedent? And and really the core of his question is, do you see any preferable value systems from our past that perhaps we should re-embrace that allows you to achieve some of the things that you're talking about, either from the past or from other cultures? Yeah,
1: totally. I, I love that question, because I think that we are Kind of running on a 17th or 18th century playbook of you know values and utilitarianism and you know there's it's it's amazing how deeply that stuff runs. When when I was doing a lot of research, the movement that became really fascinating to me was called communitarianism, um, and this first was around uh, when the United States was first beginning. It's been a couple of years since I read all this, but communitarianism was really based on values pluralism and that uh, you could have a society where you know education would be run by educational values health by health values and everything would be run according to its sort of its native script and that orienting a society around that way would wouldn't be utopia, but would create the, the best potential of outcomes. Um, and so people end up experimenting with this. And, and interestingly, one of the most important thinkers in game theory, John Nash, who created Prisoner's Dilemma, he ended up moving to a communitarian community in the 1970s. This is how I ended up finding out about this movement. Um, but there's a, a book I read called Spheres of Justice, which had a tremendous effect on on me, which which argues that the form of all injustice in the world uh, is when a value system rules beyond its rightful domain. So the most classic example is is Galileo being asked to refute the laws of science because the the values of the church were more powerful at that time. So that's a form of injustice, and like and and really. All injustice in the world is rooted in that kind of idea. This book was written by Michael Walzer. Um, And so, the notion of like trying to find the right lens of value, kind of finding that match between what is the situation, what is the value at stake, and then acting rather than always assuming there's a singular value at stake, Uh, that's kind of like the, the philosophical underpinning of my whole line of thinking. And so that originated from this notion of, of yeah, values pluralism. That um, values are expressive; they are rational in the eye of their beholder, uh, and that a society could actually flourish if you allowed everyone to act according to their value system. That we maybe imagine that as some like discordant values orgy, but in reality, that's more. It's probably more like a rainforest. It's probably more like an ecosystem that would emerge if we just allowed people to live truly to their to their value systems.
0: We uh, we have another question from uh, YouTube this time from Kate Hammer and and she's asking what do you think matters most that also evades measurement so it's it's great to talk about these new uh, value systems but if we can't measure that how do we even identify it as yeah. a value yeah
1: kind of the, the the way I come at metrics and measurement being so important is. Not that I want that to happen. Like the idea that measuring things removes the love uh, and magic from them. Like I, I, I emotionally buy into that. Um, but if I think about automated systems and the kind of information they will require to operate, then I think like the idea that we shouldn't be in the metric game because we think it's like it's it's not indie enough. You know, I just can't. That that's hard for me to stomach because I think the influence of these these things is going to be so strong. But what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to find signals that approximate uh, these different kind of metrics. We can look at examples of how industries change as a result of of new metrics being added. So if you think about food, food where, say, calories are being forced to be displayed, we've, we've put ourselves into this interesting, like, a uh, dual metric decision making process of price and calories together that i still think we don't know quite the language of how to do that but here we see this shift from like a a monolithic value system to now a, a sort of something more like a values pluralistic system you can even see it in sports where say like data analysis has been used to completely re-engineer how teams play because they've shown that previous strategies produced less desired outcomes than different kinds of strategies. So I think that if I imagine how these new kinds of values might be accepted, it's not from every CEO getting woke in the same way. It is from these values being rationally expressed. It is from these being demonstrated as producing better outcomes that we all agree upon. Because that's, that's the world where you get someone who disagrees with this politically uh, to actually take this up and apply this in their business. Because like, if we're just trying to speak on, the, on this like cultural value woke space, you're only going to talk to the choir. The importance of this, the, the meaning of this, the goal of this uh, should be that this is not the new indie hit that lets people feel superior to another group of people. But no, this is the fucking mainstream. This is the game. This is what success is. This is this is obvious. Uh, and so how do you work to that reality? Um, and to me, that that's where you get to like global scale of change. And it seems to me that anything less than that is like, what are we even doing here?
0: I want to ask you another question about our our current state and the the pandemic that we're dealing with. A lot of people will look to you and look to Kickstarter uh, as freelancers and as creatives. And What is your advice, Yancey, for those sorts of individuals during this very difficult time?
1: Cut costs cut costs i mean it's it's just you got to live as light as you can i have my own versions of these things right where you know i had a compartmentalization of life of having a child having a work self all these other selves now they're all just piled on top of each other it's just cacophony trying to pull out my now me my future me the part of me that's creative that's working on projects getting that person to focus has been difficult to do that i ended up doing an exercise to step into my future me self where i imagined okay it's a year and a half from now uh, the last of the lockdowns is over, you know, the vaccine's done, we're out. Let's imagine you feel especially proud of what you did during that time. Well, then what did you do? What are those three things that you did? And and when I went through that process, in addition to my family obligations, I, I focused in on completing a single long-term project, that the idea that I would just be grinding on something uh, sort of bit by bit each day, that I thought that would be the right kind of creative output for me. But so knowing that means... Like, I have to change the cost structure of my life. Uh, I have to sort of have this thought of what if income is not anything like what I expect it to be for the next year. Um, and then to give myself meaning, to let myself feel still feel motivated, I'm trying to set this target of like a project that I'm completing bit by bit along the way. You know, people are going to launch Kickstarters, Patreons, things like that to make up the gaps in their, you know, the economic gaps that they face some of those will do well. I think some will be harder, because not a lot of people feel that secure right now.
0: So It's it's really, really tough. I guess my final question then is, is, how do we become active advocates for this new way of thinking about value? What must we do as individuals, I guess, to force a change to the political economy? I
1: think it does start with individuals becoming more aware, developing that active awareness, having, having this kind of language of a dimensionality of self-interest. Not viewing the economic choice as always being the right choice, being able to voice that in a meeting, you know, being able to sh- gradually shift the culture of your company in that kind of way, you know, I believe that there is a there is a groundswell in a direction that's it's definitely it's against the excesses of capital, right? Uh, there's sort of an anti groundswell that that's happening that I think will only grow. I think the fuse has been lit, and what we're going through right now is just going to only exacerbate it. Um, but the question is, what what do we step into? If not what we have now, then what? And and how can we have a vision that's not destructive? And so to me, the constructive vision is we're owning the spaces where we have impact. We're owning our future impact. We're trying to be very conscious of how we affect one another. Um, and we're doing that in our personal lives. We're doing that in our organizations. And if this kind of language comes to be accepted, if the future is come to be seen as rational, as if the collective and the us is come to be seen as just as real as the me, then I think that the kinds of choices and the values that we'll make, uh, that we'll prioritize, are just going to change from that. Um, so I think that for now, it is just becoming comfortable with these as real spaces that exist. I think 30 years from now, everything I'm saying now is going to be like so basic and boring, it's going to seem absurd that anyone had to explain it. Uh, I, I firmly believe that's going to happen. Um, and it just comes from just being comfortable. And I, and I could just say for myself, having done this for two, two years now, and is having a meaningful impact uh, on how I think about myself and my space in the world. And I realized that when we're talking about the kinds of macro challenges that we're talking about, like this, all this sounds very, very small and, and it may be in the larger scheme, but this is how things begin. This is how things grow. And, uh, I saw with Kickstarter, you know, you you look at anything through history, this this is how things happen. There isn't the spontaneous combustion where there's like the big bang of wokeness and everyone just wakes up and believes the opposite of what they believed the day before. It's not going to happen that way. And so I think we need a credible path that owns what's good about the present, that yes ands it, builds on top of it, and that isn't just preaching to the choir. And to me, that future looks something like this.
0: So on that note, I want to thank you, Yancy, for joining us for one of our very first Futures Podcast livestream events. Thank you so much. Thank you to Yancy for sharing his thoughts on how to create a more generous world. You can find out more by purchasing Yancy's new book, This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World, available now. And don't forget, you can watch the full, unedited video of this conversation at futurespodcast.net, where you can also find out about all of our livestream events. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at futurespodcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.